Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, good morning, guys. Go ahead and have a seat. Good to see you this morning. We are in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, uh, going through Matthew's gospel verse by verse. Uh, verse 3 is what we're going to be looking at today. If you're a guest with us or if you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back. Uh, that is our gift to you. Feel free to go grab one of those and, and take it home. Well, as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, let me review from the last couple weeks. We, uh, we started a new section in Matthew's gospel. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that, that we learned is that Matthew, our gospel writer here, he likes to point out the importance of mountains. So as Moses went up to Mount Sinai, to receive God's law, Jesus also hiked a mountain and gave his disciples a greater law. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, Jesus gave two other sermons in Matthew's gospel. We got the parables discourse in chapter 13. That's where Jesus gives six parables back to back. We have the Olivet discourse, which is uh, chapters 24 and 25. He gave that on the Mount of Olives. So olives and olivets. And then in John's gospel, Jesus also gives a sermon on his death and his resurrection. But the Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus's manifesto. It's been said that this sermon is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Amen. And by the way, he's still living. Amen. He's not in the grave, right? So in this sermon, Jesus preaches and he corrects the theological errors of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus starts his sermon off with what we call the Beatitudes. Notice here that they're called the Beatitudes for a reason, not the Do-attitudes. And that's Jesus' whole point. We are human beings. We're not human doings. So we saw, last week we saw Jesus sit down to preach. He opens his mouth and he says the word blessed nine times in the first 12 verses. And we left off in Matthew 5 too. Jesus began to teach them saying, blessed. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And to understand that word blessed, we had to look at the original languages in which the Bible was written. Um, the Greek word makarios literally means happy. Makarios corresponds to the Hebrew, ashrei. Uh, ashrei means happy and carefree and blessed, fortunate and blissful. But here's the thing. It means all of those things at the same time. So we discovered that the English language doesn't have a word like the Greek or the Hebrew. And that's why we had to pile on so many synonyms just to get a grasp of, of what Jesus is talking about here. So it is challenging to translate Jesus' concept of happiness into our 21st century because our perception of happiness is based on emotions. 
When Jesus says blessed, he's not talking about emotional stuff. He's, he's talking about a person who is favored by God. And because of God's favor, we can't help but to be happy and carefree. Can you imagine living your life carefree? No? It is hard. It is hard. Imagine living your life so blessed and so fortunate and so blissful in the way that Jesus describes here. Here's the key to all of this. To live our lives this way, it requires a deep, settled, internal conviction of God's promises, regardless of the external circumstances that are happening around us. So how do we do that? Is that wishful thinking? Or is it a supernatural reality that God promises? Scripture uses that word blessed to describe the very character of God. This is so cool. Within the nature of God, we've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Within God's very nature, God is happy. He's blessed. Um, scripture talks about this. The psalmist calls God blessed in Psalm 68, 35. He says, the God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Psalm 72, 18. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does wonders. Blessed be his glorious name forever. The whole earth is filled with his glory the whole earth is filled with his greatness, his splendor, his majesty. He is blessed. And then the psalmist says, amen and amen. He says, let it be. Let it be. I love it. We see the same thing happening in the New Testament. The apostle Paul calls Jesus blessed in 1 Timothy 6. Tim says, he is blessed. Excuse me, the apostle Paul writing to Tim says, he is the blessed and the only sovereign. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. So because of this concept of blessing inside the, the character of God, happiness and blessings are within God's very nature. So God chooses to bless his people out of, out of his nature, and he chooses to bless people with a blessing. God wants his people to be happy because God himself is happy. In other words, God can't help to bless his people. A person who is blessed, a person who, who God blesses has received his divine acceptance. So being blessed by God is a gift. We can't earn it. We certainly don't want to return it. We wouldn't want to. And God's blessing, check this out. It'll never be taken away from us. So what we are to do in response to that blessing is worship him because of it. God's blessing drives us to our knees in praise and thankfulness. And God's blessedness in our lives, it brings us to our key point from last week. We said this, this idea of blessing that Jesus is talking about inside the Beatitudes here. Blessed implies an inward satisfaction that does not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. So regardless of what is happening in the world, 
regardless of the fear that the newscast forecasts, regardless of what your social media feed is feeding you, regardless of how your kids or your grandkids act, regardless of your physical health or maybe your financial situation, as a child of God, guys, those are all temporary external circumstances that cannot and will not steal your eternal joy. They can't. In other words, to be blessed by God, it's, it's not a superficial feeling based on a set of, of emotions. To be blessed by God, it refers to this personal relationship that is, is based solely on the person and the work of Jesus Christ himself. And the fruit of this relationship brings about contentment and peace. We are content for one reason. And the fact is, is that our lives are now right with God. We've got nothing to prove. We've got nothing to hide. We are right with God. Not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did on our behalf. See, the Sermon on the Mount, it drives this point home. Jesus illustrates our complete lack of ability to get to heaven on our own. We're going to see this loud and clear in this first beatitude. So all of that is a recap from last week. We got through two verses. Today we're going to get through one. I hope you're not in a hurry. So for the next four hours, we're going to be... Some of you guys gave me the stink eye right there. <laughs> so we know what Jesus means by the word blessed. And today we're going to learn what those blessings consist of. The first blessing is to be poor in spirit. What does Jesus truly mean when he says blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, dear friends, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Matthew 5, starting in verse 1, when he saw the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Thanks, guys. Please have a seat. Take a deeper look here at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So what does this mean? What, what exactly is Jesus saying here? The message says this. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. The God's word translation says, blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritually helpless. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. The New Living Translation says, God blesses those who are poor and they realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The NCV, they are blessed who realize their spiritual poverty. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. So let's slow way down here in verse 3. Blessed are. Blessed are. Notice the, the wording there. The Beatitudes are, are pronouncements. They are declarations. Jesus is stating a judicial fact here. He's not saying you might be blessed. 
He's not saying you could be blessed. He's saying you are blessed. Just as you live and you breathe, if you are a child of God, you are blessed. The, the Beatitudes are not based on some kind of random probability. They are divine judgments for his disciples. Now, the judgments, these are good. Uh, they're, they're not bad. These are not woe judgments. They're not W-O-E judgments. Uh, those judgments are, are cursings from God. We'll get to that in chapter 23. But the Beatitudes are the opposite. See, God is blessing his disciples here. So back to verse 3, blessed are who? Blessed are the poor. The first beatitude points us back to the promises found in the Old Testament. Look at this, Psalm 34, 6. The psalmist says, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him from his troubles. Isaiah 41, 17, the poor and the needy, they seek water, but there is none. So the poor and the needy, they are, they're dying of thirst. There's no water. Their tongues are parched with thirst. And God says through Isaiah, I will answer them. I am the Lord. I'm the God of Israel. I will not abandon them. I'm not going to let them go thirsty. Isaiah 61.1, this is amazing. The spirit of the Lord God is on me. The me there is Jesus. Why is the Spirit of God on Jesus? Because the Lord has anointed him. Anointed him to do what? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted this morning? He has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. Freedom to the prisoners. So as we go through Matthew's gospel, we're going to see Jesus do all of that. So back to verse 3, blessed are the poor. The, the Old Testament provides examples really of three groups of poor people. The first group, they're poor because they're just lazy. The second group are poor because of a tragedy that happened in their life, no fault of their own. The third group of poor people um, are, are poor because other people took advantage of them. There are two Greek words for poor. This is, this is really important to understand the difference here. So let me get real geeky on you, all right? The first one is penikros. The second one is pitahos, all right? Stay with me. Luke 21.1, Jesus looked up. He saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a penikros poor widow dropping in two tiny coins, Jesus says this. Can't you just see Jesus going, come here, guys, look at this. Look at this woman over there. Truly, I tell you, this poor woman, this penny-cross woman, has put more in than all of these other guys. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had. So this woman was poor. She was penny-cross. She was poor, but she's not a beggar. Now, someone who is a beggar, that's pit, pit to host. Um, this person entirely dependent on others for sustenance. 
So someone who is pit to host poor requires that they can't support themselves. They are utterly dependent on others. They are material, materially destitute. Uh, we see this kind of poverty mentioned when John the baptizer starts to doubt his faith. You ever start to doubt your faith? John the baptizer did. Matthew eleven five, Jesus said this, You go tell John that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy, they're cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor, the pitahos, they are told the good news. See, John would have, he would have immediately recognized that Jesus is God because John knows his Old Testament. He knows that the Messiah was, was prophesied to care for the poor. We see it again with uh, Jesus and the rich young ruler. Remember him? Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, well, go sell all of your belongings and give to the pitahos, these kind of poor people, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. And then once you do that, then come and follow me. He didn't do that, by the way. So to be this kind of poor, pitahos poor, it's to shrink, it's to cower, it's to cringe when you're asking for money or help. You're turning your face away. This poor person is crouching somewhere, begging for their life. They're reaching out with one hand and with the other hand, they're covering their face in shame. Luke 16, 19. Another example here, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen. This guy wore Armani suits. He was feasting lavishly every single day. He was eating at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, he's covered with sores. He's lying at the gate. This guy is just baking in the sun all day long. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. So what's Jesus, what, what's Jesus telling us here? This is amazing. Why would Jesus specifically use this word of poor? Why pitikos? Why that? Blessed are the poor. Well, Jesus is establishing a kingdom of God's standard here. And what he's doing, he's getting our attention. The kingdom standard clashes with our current worldview. Jesus is painting a picture of material destitution, this idea of extreme poverty to reveal a spiritual reality for all of us. Because Jesus, he's not talking about material poverty. This, that's not what his sermon is about. How do we know this? Because verse 3 continues. Blessed are the poor in what? In spirit. The context of verse 3 is it's not external. Once again, it's internal. It's not material. It's spiritual. Jesus says poor in spirit. So to be poor in spirit is to recognize your spiritual poverty apart from God. It is to see yourself as you truly are. It is the reality of being lost and helpless, and hopeless, all apart from the cross of Christ. 
Apart from Jesus, every single one of us is spiritually impoverished. So we're all on the same playing field, guys. Every single one of us. Doesn't matter what your education is. Doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. Doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't even matter how much Bible you know or don't know. Isn't that good news? The the, the person who's poor in spirit is someone who recognizes two things. Number one, they realize that they live in spiritual poverty. They realize that they are spiritually broken. And number two, that their complete dependence on God for any kind of spiritual blessing um, comes from him, which includes eternal life. So the person who is poor in spirit recognizes they can't save themselves from the consequences of sin, which lead to a very real place called hell. A person who is poor in spirit begs for mercy. He pleads for grace. A person who is poor in spirit, he realizes he has no spiritual goodness whatsoever. They know that they can earn no spiritual reward because the wages of sin lead to death. They've got no pride left in themselves. So Jesus specifically, he paints this picture of Pentecost poor. And and the image is this, is that we are all crawling on our hands and our knees. We are all ashamed and naked as we helplessly and hopelessly come before a holy Holy, holy God. And we're pleading that God will not give us what we truly deserve. A person who is poor in spirit realizes we've got nothing to give back to Almighty God. And this profound realization, it is not an act, it is genuine. Because we see this kind of person repent, repent from their sin. A person who is poor in spirit experiences true humility. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. He says this in Isaiah 66 too. He says, I will look favorably on this kind of person. One who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. God will bless that kind of person. See the word favorably there? God's favor is on this person. God will bless this kind of person. When God called Moses to um, lead Israel out of Egypt, remember Moses pleaded his unworthiness. And because of Moses' his humility, God was able to use him mightily. Exodus 3:10. God says, All right, Pharaoh, or excuse me, um, all right, Moses, I'm gonna send you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, uh-uh, time out. Who am I? God, have you met me? I can't do this. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and, and, and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses is saying, thanks, but no thanks. You got the wrong guy. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, Oh, no sweat, God. Man, I got this. Done and done. I'll, I'll get back to you when I, when I complete this mission. Moses didn't say that. Jesus teaches how to be poor in spirit in a, in a parable. 
Luke 18.10, Jesus says this. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee. So a Pharisee, he is a, a religious professional businessman. He's a religious politician. And the other guy is a tax collector. He, he is as low as they get. He is a sinner. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. Can't you just see this? He's standing and says, God, hmm, God, man, do I thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that I am not like other people. God, I'm not greedy. Mm -mm. I'm not unrighteous. I'm not an adulterer. Man, I'm not even like that, that tax collector way over there. Let me, let me give you my resume, God. I fast twice a week. Aren't you, aren't you impressed? Aren't you impressed, God, that out of everything that, that you give me, I give you 10% back? Oh, I know you're impressed. I give a tenth of everything that I get. Hmm. But the tax collector... Standing far off. He's not even going to raise his eyes to heaven. What's that look like? He's crouched in a corner. He's not raising his eyes to heaven. He's got one hand out and one hand covering his face because he is so ashamed of who he is. And then he keeps striking his chest. And he says, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, God. I'm a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this one, the one that's poor in spirit, he went down to his house. He went, he went back justified. He went back forgiven. He went back free. Rather than the other, the, you know, the professional religious guy, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee was proud in spirit. The tax collector, poor in spirit. And guys, we have the same choice today. We can either choose to humble ourselves or God will humiliate us. The apostles humbled themselves. The apostle Peter, he's loud mouth, aggressive, self-assertive, proud, but you know, the thing about Pete is that he begins to change as he walks with Jesus. And when Jesus miraculously provided that great catch of fish for Peter, right? The, the boat almost sinks with fish. Pete was so overwhelmed from his unworthiness to be standing before a holy God. Peter falls at his feet in Luke 5.8 and he says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Even after Paul became an apostle, he said this in Romans 7, 18. He said, for I know that nothing good lives in me. Nothing, no thing, nada. Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy 1, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. Boy, that's saying something. And guys, that's not false humility. So, dear friends, I think very few of us who call ourselves Christians, we have this attitude that Jesus is talking about. And that's why this message is so shocking. I mean, how many books do you have in your library about becoming Pitticos poor? 
nothing new. I mean, we see it with the Israelites. Instead of adopting this posture of humility that's found in the scriptures, the Israelites brought the law down to a human level, and they interpreted God's word in a more manageable, you know, a more acceptable, a more human way. So they brought God's perfect standard of right living down to a set of rules that they themselves could achieve. So these man-made rules, they were turned into man-made traditions, and they taught those man-made traditions as a standard to get into heaven. And we fast forward to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says this, Romans 1. He says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we fast forward to today, and we're still exchanging truth for a lie. We, as human beings, we love to bring God's infinite standards of holiness down to man's finite standards. And the reason that we do that is because it gives us the illusion that we can actually keep God's standards without his help. We're still doing the same thing today, all this woke business. You know, one of the most disturbing things about the 21st century church, American church specifically, is that we come to worship God not as spiritual beggars, but as narcissists who demand to be entertained. At one time or another, we all do this. It's, it's part of our DNA, our spiritual DNA. It's called sin. We all think that God is less holy than he is because we can't grasp his true holiness. And not only that, we believe the lie that we are more godly, that we're more good, that we're more righteous than we truly are. We believe the lie that we're further along than we really are. And no other picture in Scripture paints the image of God's holiness compared to our wretchedness. It's in Isaiah chapter 6. Let me show this to you. In the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah, he was a king in Judah for over 50 years. He dies, Judah starts to freak out. They don't know what to do. So Isaiah goes to the temple, he starts to, to pray, he sees this vision. He says, I saw the Lord, he sees the Lord Jesus seated on a high and lofty throne. All right, so go ahead and picture that. The Lord Jesus sitting on a high and lofty throne, the hem of his robe, it fills the entire temple. It's, it's, it's this picture of complete majesty. Verse 2, seraphim, they were standing above him. Seraphim are specific angels that worship. They are in the presence of a holy God, and they get the, the privilege of, of worshiping him for eternity. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces, so they don't get to look at God directly. With two, they covered their feet. That would be disrespectful. And with two, they flew. And then one angel called to the other, and he says this. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The, his glory fills the whole earth. Once again, his majesty, his splendor, his authority. 
So the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices. This is not God speaking. This is the angels in God's presence. And it's their voices that shake the foundations. So Isaiah is watching this whole thing unfold, right? Look at the first word out of his mouth in verse 5. He says, woe. W-O-E, woe. He pronounces a judgment on him. He curses himself. He says, woe is me for I am ruined. Because, why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes... I've seen the king, I've seen God, and I'm going to die. So Isaiah's, what he did is he experienced the reality of what happens of his own spiritual poverty. The first thing that we, that people all through scripture, when they see an angel, they see the Lord, the first thing that they think is they're going to die. So do you guys see how when we believe the lie, that God is like us, that has disastrous consequences. I saw a, uh, a teenager a couple years ago. He was wearing a shirt that said, Jesus is my homie. <laughs> Dear friends, Jesus is not your homie. Jesus is holy. He is holy. He is holy. See, no one can enter heaven until he recognizes how unbelievably unworthy he is of it. And our unworthiness is the reason why poor in spirit is the first beatitude. It's from this posture, the posture of spiritual bankruptcy, that all the other beatitudes flow. So the question becomes, all right, how do we, how do we become poor in spirit? Well, our brothers and our sisters throughout church history, they've, they tried a few things. Uh, monasticism, some of them became monks. They, they tried to shut out the world. They tried to become hermits. That didn't work because the, the, it's not just the world that's filled with sin, right? It's us. We have a sin problem. Ascetics, uh, people who choose to live a, a poor lifestyle, they give up all the, the worldly luxuries in life. Other brothers and sisters have tried mutilation to where they punish themselves for their sin. And, and none of these options work to be poor in spirit. Why is that? Because it always has the opposite reaction of what they intend. All these actions feed their own pride. They were feeding pride. They weren't, star they weren't starving it. They're not picking up their cross. They're not following Jesus. They thought they had a better way. And all these things were done by their own self-effort. Now, they may be sincere in doing these things, but can you see how they're sincerely wrong? So rather than becoming poor in spirit, they became proud in spirit. They were adding to their spiritual resume. I mean, the very definition of, of being poor in spirit means it doesn't, it doesn't start with us. However, in God's sovereign work, there is a personal cooperation the first thing that we have to do to cooperate with God is to deal with our pride. We have to exterminate our pride. Men, gentlemen, for the most part, we've got to be broken. We've got thick skulls. 
I don't see, I don't hear anybody amen in that. <laughs> but y'all know it's true. Women, on the other hand, most women need to be wooed. So back to verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom where Jesus is king. And today the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom is in our hearts. It's revealed how we treat others. And very, very soon there will be a physical kingdom. There will be a literal kingdom where Jesus does come back and then everything changes. And here's the thing. Jesus wants to give you this kingdom. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He's giving that to his, to his children. Now, why do you think Jesus begins with this particular beatitude? Well, poor in spirit is the very foundation in which all the other beatitudes are, are built. But the question remains, how do we get there, right? How do we become poor in spirit? Maybe a better question is this. How do you know that you're poor in spirit? How do we know? I love this psalm, Psalm 131.1. Lord, my heart is not proud, and my eyes are not haughty. I, I don't look down at people. I don't get involved with things that are too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed I have quieted my soul. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a, a weaned child. So a, a weaned child is, is gradually deprived of mother's milk. And with time, babies learn to, to eat solid food. Eventually, the, the child learns how to feed himself. So we could say the same thing spiritually. When we are born again, we have to be fed spiritual milk. But over time, we, we, learn to we learn to feed ourselves, not just with milk, but, but solid spiritual food. When we spend time reading the Word of God with the people of God, we grow from an infant into a mature person who reflects Christ. So in other words, our soul is weaned off from ourselves. You know you're maturing when you, slow when you slowly start to have a disgust for the world's lies and instead, you start to hunger and thirst for God's ways. You know you're maturing when, when you hunger for truth and your activities start to change, your habits change, and nobody guilts you into reading the Bible. You, you, can't just, you can't help but want to read the Bible. Nobody coerces you to come to church or a Bible study or to give or to serve. You choose to start doing all of these things. And you start to sense God changing you. Because he is. See, God is purging you of yourself. Now, those are really good indicators that we're maturing, that we're becoming poor in spirit. But by far, the number one indicator that we're poor in spirit is the fruit of gratitude. The fruit of gratitude, it grows in our lives when we stop complaining about our situation. And we start praising God for his grace and his mercy, no matter what our situation. Christians have no reason at all to complain about anything. Why? Because we know. We know that by being poor in spirit here, we don't deserve anything either. 
Everything that we have is because the Lord gave it to us. So Christians should spill over an, an overwhelming gratitude. Now, this doesn't mean that we're fake. It doesn't mean that we're, we're not allowed to hurt because we know the world's broken. This is not as good as it gets. We, we accept the brokenness. This is not our best life now. That, that life is to come. But here's the thing. When we complain, we're telling God that we are unsatisfied with his gifts of mercy and grace and, and forgiveness. We're demanding God change our situation so that we can become happy. And as we've just learned, our happiness is not external. It's internal. And then lastly, complaining not only offends God, it exhausts those around you. Those that you love, complaining exhausts them. How many of you deal with kids or grandkids that are always just griping about something? What's that do to you? Now imagine what it does to a holy God who has freely given you everything. And we're saying this is not enough. Here's a couple things to consider for this week. Number one, when is the last time that you asked God to forgive you for your complaining When is the last time that you confessed your sin of ingratitude as sin? Number three, when is the last time that you asked those that you love to forgive you for your complaining? Uh, dear friends, I, I, I dare you. I, I double dog dare you to make a concentrated effort to stop complaining for one week. Watch what happens to your relationship with God and to your relationship with those around you. I mean, the alternative is to keep complaining and, and to remain unhappy. You're more than welcome to do that. But God says in this verse, blessed are the poor in spirit. You are blessed. You are happy when you are poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Amen. Amen. Amen.